You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, recording from Washington, D.C. And I'm your co-host, Katie Putz, coming to you from Maryland. Good to be back with you, Katie. It's been a few weeks, but it's good to be back on the show. We have a new national security strategy from the Biden administration, uh, which a few listeners actually DM'd me on Twitter about. So good news uh, to those listeners and hopefully to others, which is that is what we will talk about today. Um, so for listeners that may not know, the Biden administration's national security strategy is coming to us late. Uh, traditionally, this is a document that administrations will release in their first year in office. The Trump administration managed to get theirs out in the final months of 2017. But part of the reason we're seeing this document from the Biden administration when we are, uh, i.e. a few weeks before the midterm elections, uh, is due to the war in Ukraine, which required a significant rewrite of the initial draft of the NSS. And we'll talk a little bit about the effect that that you know the war has had on this document, uh, but Katie, there's a lot to talk about here. It's 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 a long document, almost four, uh, you know almost 50 pages, covers a lot of grounds. So we're not going to get super in the details on uh, a range of issues, but of course, you know this is the Asia Geopolitics podcast, and we'll talk about primarily the sections pertaining to Asia uh, or the Indo-Pacific, of course, as as everyone talks about it these days. Uh, so let me let me just pass it over to you. I mean, what's your what's your first impression of the NSS? I mean, I think, you know, when we look at this document, as you mentioned, you can definitely see uh, how it could it was revised to reflect the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and how that was sort of worked into the existing challenges facing the United States. Um, as I think our listeners will be aware, a document like this is a big overarching strategy. So it sort of tries to be everything all at once, um, which means that individuals who come to it with a specific sort of issue in mind will sometimes find their particular hobby horse lacking in presence. Um, that said, I think it does a good job of kind of creating a framework for the United States and how the Biden administration wants to approach um, the world. Uh, and that obviously includes the Indo-Pacific, which plays a big role within the document, you know, just to kind of skip to the end of the document where it, it uh, frames up the U.S. strategy by region, the Indo-Pacific is listed first. And I don't think that's by accident. It's listed ahead of Europe. Um, and I think that's reflective of um, the one word I haven't mentioned yet, which is China. And it's all over this document. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious to hear your take on the the documents um sort of perspective on china the asia pacific um and how the the war in ukraine might have changed it over time yeah absolutely i mean you know the first thing to say about this document overall is that i don't think it's really you know it doesn't really contain any surprises for anybody that's been uh watching the biden administration's approach to national security uh and and foreign policy generally um china is the big star of the document in many ways uh more than more than 55 mentions of china uh going by one count and more if you sort of look at the various derivatives mm -hmm. um <laughs> the document you know it it identifies china as the only country with uh both the intention and the capability to challenge uh, the Western-led international order, uh, uh, you know, led by the United States, and so that's why China is at the center of this document. Russia is handled uh, with considerable detail as well, but in a very different way. Russia is sort of treated as, uh, <laughs> generally speaking, a troublemaker for the Western-led order and for European security. Um, Everything about China in this document, I think, largely comports to public statements that we've seen out of the Biden administration, including uh, what we talked about earlier on this podcast, uh, their their Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, you'll hear administration officials, you know, make the distinction between 
their Indo-Pacific strategy and their China strategy, implying that the former is not a strategy for the latter, uh, which I think is a good way to sort of talk about it, because that is a concern certainly uh, in the region itself, in the Indo-Pacific, where certain countries, uh, especially countries in, in Southeast Asia, uh, have a perception that the United States is viewing all of its engagement with uh, various countries in the Indo-Pacific through its broader lenses of competition with China. And I think this document will probably, on balance, I think, reaffirm those views in the region, even if that wasn't the administration's intention here. Um, look, I mean, the the administration, uh, and I'm here I'm just going to read from the document which I have in front of me, uh, you know, identifies three core tenets of its strategy towards China. Uh, and the first one of these is basically not really part of a China strategy insofar as it's, you know, a better America strategy, like sort of the build back better idea, right? Like invest in the foundations mm -hmm. of American strength at home, national competitiveness, innovation, resilience, democracy. Um, that is something that, you know, Biden himself, since his inaugural address, has basically pointed out that that is a priority for the United States to be better, you know, more competitive globally in general. But it's identified here as the first leg of the China strategy. The second and third, I think, are a lot more interesting, which is uh, the second is, you know, um, in many ways, if the Trump administration was the America first administration, the Biden administration is in many ways the alliance's first administration, allies and partners, right? So that mm -hmm. is the second leg of the China strategy, which is to align our efforts with um, the American network of allies and partners in the region. And allies are prominently featured throughout this document. Uh, you know, alliances, partnerships, minilateral arrangements like the Quad and AUKUS, their contributions to U.S. national security goals and broader strategy in the Indo-Pacific, very prominent uh, in the NSS, unsurprisingly. Uh, and then the final leg of the China strategy uh, is to uh, compete responsibly with the PRC to defend U.S. interests and to build a vision for the future. Uh, this idea of responsible competition uh, has been mm -hmm. a theme that we've sort of seen in public statements coming out of White House officials uh, in the context of Biden's meetings, uh, virtual meetings with Xi Jinping and uh, administration policy more broadly towards China. Um, the, you know, all of this said, um, the the broader take on China here is, I think, rather generic and, of course, as these documents go, maximalist, is that the U.S. is going to compete with China on all tracks across really all regions. Uh, they, you know, there's a sentence in the section on China that cites that, you know, across Europe, Asia, the Middle East, Africa, and Latin America, countries are clear-eyed about the nature of the challenges that the PRC poses, which, you know, is is a nice assertion for the Biden administration to make. But reality, I would argue, is, is far more complex than that in terms of how various countries in these regions, uh, you know, view China. So this is, you know, ultimately, I think, a fine statement of how the administration is thinking about the China challenge. Uh, but I don't think it really gives us uh, all that much you know, novelty when it comes to um, identifying how the Biden administration might maneuver, uh, you know, its competition with China, uh, perhaps in the second half of, of Biden's term that's coming up soon. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and I don't know that the NSS is intended to be novel necessarily. I think if this document had been able to come out earlier in the year, uh, maybe it wouldn't seem like a, so much a repetition of talking points already sort of stated on the China angle. Um, but that said, you know, I, I agree with you that there's not necessarily anything shocking or new in that. And it also doesn't quite answer some of the questions I think a lot of analysts have about, okay, well, how, how do you achieve um, cooperation at the same time that you're kind of competing also? Um, and I think the document recognizes the tension between those two, uh, but it sort of is is up to time to tell how that's managed. Mm -hmm. um, I well, think, 
Yeah, go on. Oh, sorry. I was just going to point out sort of one novel thing that I did want to draw attention to. And maybe we can talk about this for, you know, for a few minutes, which is um, there's this there's this really interesting section. Uh, and, you know, this is a theme that appears throughout the NSS that I suspect was part of the revisions that happened after the invasion of Ukraine, which is this idea that security in the Indo-Pacific and transatlantic security and European security are, are deeply interlinked, uh, which is an mm-hmm. assertion, of course, that's you know, uh, in many ways easy to make, but but harder to demonstrate. Uh, but here the administration sort of also speaks for American allies. So I'm just going to read out this section here. You know, similarly, we want our Indo-Pacific allies to be engaged cooperatively with our European allies on shaping the order to which we all aspire and standing up to Russia uh, and, and cooperating with the European Union and United Kingdom on our competition with the PRC. This is not a favor to the United States. Our allies recognize that a collapse of the international order in one region will ultimately endanger it in the others. Um, and, you know, that last sentence is, is is interesting when you look at statements by Prime Minister Kishida of Japan with the Shangri-La dialogue, you know, stands up in front of the room and says, you know, Ukraine today could be Asia tomorrow. Uh, mm-hmm. And and so, you know, there is some truth to what I think the administration is saying here about how uh, certain allies, at least, are, are thinking about the interconnectedness of um, of these uh, of these theaters. Um but the other thing, you know, from the perspective of a strategy document, which is supposed to be matching, you know, limited ends with with finite means and, and, and making tough choices and trade-offs and, 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 you know, prioritizing certain things over others, which, you know, I'm not going to hold the Biden administration's feet to the fire because every administration's NSS, I think, is generally poor at actually doing strategy versus in some ways doing <laughs> public relations. Um, but making this assertion that the Indo-Pacific and Europe are so intertwined is in a way a convenient way to not actually have to make any of those trade-offs, right? That America is going to do it all. We're going to support security in Europe. We're going to su- support um, the rules-based order in the Indo-Pacific. And we're not going to make any tough choices about, you know, where we're going to allocate our finite resources. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that's that's the sense that I have. I don't know if that's too harsh. I, I'd be curious for your, um, you know, your thoughts on this idea of the interconnectedness of Europe and Asia. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that might be a little bit too harsh. I, I totally understand where you're coming from in terms of, you know, if, if, if you're saying that all these things are interconnected, you don't really have to say which one you prioritize. Um, but on the other hand, and I, I also clued into this as I was reading through the document, one sentence that I highlighted um, mentioned, you know, including by encouraging tighter linkages between like-minded Indo-Pacific and European countries. And I think, and it was mentioned immediately after a mention of the Quad and AUKUS. Um, And so I think the sort of, it's not a trade-off that the United States is saying, but it's saying, you know, our, our allies are the that greater power that we have and that enables this kind of um, policy. Um, I think it, it will take time to see if that works out um, because it's certainly, you know, if you look at a map, right, Europe and, and Asia are quite quite distant from each other. But I think if anything, the COVID-19 pandemic and then the invasion of Ukraine by Russia has illustrated that intertwined nature. You have a lot of Asian um, countries. You mentioned um, Japan's prime minister who who really made the case that Asian countries should care about what's happening in Ukraine and what that says about not just the international order, but also the the secondary and tertiary effects on the global economy, on supply chains, on food food security. Um, And I think that recognition of the interconnected nature of the world in which we live is is a given. The world is interconnected. You can't separate uh, European relations with Europe from relations with Asia. Now, I think it might be a little bit reductive to try to say, you know, the United States has to prioritize either Asia or 
Ukraine. Um, but I do think there's that tension. And then I think you see that in this strategy, the sort of recognition of that tension and trying to answer that with, well, this is what networks of allies are for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's a really important pillar that it, that you we you mentioned earlier, but you see throughout the document is the sort of reliance on allies and these uh, mini lateral uh, relations and small groups um, to really amplify the power that the United States has in the world. Mm-hmm. So moving on a little bit, um, one of the other things that, again, you know, not surprising in this document, but but interesting, at least in the way that the Biden administration specifically addresses it is the section on competition between democracies and autocracies, which has been a theme mm-hmm. of this administration since day one with the uh, with the, you know, the summit of democracies idea, so on and so forth. The NSS very explicitly notes that some parts of the world are uneasy with the competition between the United States and the world's largest autocracies, which I think I think is a good sort of self you know, a self-reflective statement to include in a document like this instead of just going, you know, rah, 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 democracies mm-hmm. are going to are going to beat autocracies because democracies are awesome. Um, and so it's it's interesting that they chose to include this. Uh, this includes, you know, statements uh, that that sort of reassure, reassure. I mean, it's, it's really unclear who this reassurance is for. It's not directed towards China or Russia. You know, uh, the NSS says we do not seek conflict or a new Cold War. Uh, and and the basic notion here is we are trying to support every country, regardless of size or strength, and exercising the freedom to make choices that serve their interests. And what's interesting to me about this defense of the administration's democracies versus autocracies framing is that the defense doesn't actually contend with the the regime type issue, right? Supporting mm-hmm. supporting every country, regardless of size or strength, I would argue, is simply supporting uh, you know the rules based <laughs> order, uh, the UN Charter, the principles of of state sovereignty, regardless of size. Um, and so really what I think the administration is boiling this issue down to is the very traditional reservations that, you know, successive American res- uh, administrations have had about the competing revisionist vision that that China and Russia profess about uh, about the mm-hmm. global order. And, and here it's just stated in this ideological way that I think is is going to, at least in Asia, uh, you know, be a tough sell uh, in uh, uh, in at least certain countries. And so I'm curious about, you know, why exactly this this section is framed in the way that it is. Um, but again, you know, uh, you know, perhaps I'm reading this a little bit too critically. But but again, I, I you know, I found that interesting. Uh, what's your take on the, uh, you know, the ideological through line uh, in the NSS, Katie? Yeah, so one one se- section, and I think we're talking about the same section that 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 first paragraph in the the nature of competition between democracies and, and autocracies, the the end of that paragraph mentions countries that do not embrace democratic institutions, but nonetheless, nevertheless, depend upon and support a rules-based international system. I thought that was a really interesting carve-out because one of the sort of paramount criticisms you could make of really any U.S. administration is that it goes out toting sort of the the power and the might of democracy and yet has a number of, of partners, Saudi Arabia is probably uh, a, a particularly uh, egregious one, that are very non-democratic and are not um, particularly interested in democracy, uh, but they are invested in a rules-based international system in a way. And so I think it's an interesting kind of carve-out for U.S. partners that are not good democratic players, um, while at the same time sort of reserving a primary place for democratic partners and like-minded partners. Um, But it is an interesting little carve out. And then uh, in that same section, uh, it mentions that, you know, there are also non-democracies that kind of 
that forswear the the style of revisionism that you see out of Russia and China. And it sets sort of non-democratic there, there's there's the Russia China non-democratic and then there's the other non-democratic um, countries that that may or may not um, see the world in, in sort of revisionist terms. Um, and so I, I do think it's an interesting sort of splitting of the hairs. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but but it does sort of it I found it refreshing to actually see it in writing um, an administration say like essentially say we, we have non-democratic partners. Yeah, and there's a re- there's a reason for that because I think a lot of administrations, um, you know, you sort of see the values driven language, but you don't see the acknowledgement that some of those partners that right. you are that are necessary for the strategic reasons um, are not ideologically aligned, and I, I think that's um, short of naming naming them specifically is probably as good as we're going to get. So I, I found that as as, a, as an interesting carve out. Yeah, I think I think you know some of these carve outs, uh, you know, demonstrate demonstrate self awareness that we that we haven't seen in 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 you know previous iterations of of a document like this. To be fair, and so you know, good on the administration for doing that. Um, one of the you know the big thing that I think really has jumped out to a lot of people uh, in this NSS, uh, and and this is perhaps the area where the NSS is the least bipartisan, you could say, uh, is mm. the fact that the word climate appears more than the word China, right? That's that's sort mm. of a fascinating, mm-hmm. um, you know, outcome here. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking back to the discussion we had recently about uh, the Pacific Island Summit uh, that the Biden administration hosted and the uh, the emphasis by many of those countries about the existential risks posed by climate change. Uh, so it's really interesting. And I think, obviously, you know, a positive thing to see climate uh, and sort of non-traditional security threats, including pandemics and biodefense, really prominently emphasized uh, in uh, uh, in this document. Um, you know, maybe maybe it's not right to be surprised by this, but in a way, I think this might be perhaps the more, you know, the most surprising component of the NSS, right? Everybody expected this document to really emphasize China, which it does in the realm of sort of traditional mm-hmm. uh, state-based threats uh, to uh, to U.S. interests. Um, but but the emphasis on climate, I find, I find really notable. Yeah. And, and I, th- I think there are sort of two, two obvious reasons for that inclusion, right? There's the, the main obvious one, which is climate change is an ex- existential issue for the entire planet. Um, the United States should take it seriously. Um, but the second reason is that a lot of those partners in the Pacific in particular that the United States wants to work with, they prioritize climate change as an existential issue. And so being able to put that in the United States' strategic documents is, I think, is a really serious signal to those countries that that Washington wants to take that seriously. Now, of course, the you know vicissitudes of U.S. domestic politics could totally upend that that apple cart um, come 2024. But I think it's an important inclusion, um, and and would it is is both obviously important on its own merits and is um, you know an acknowledgement of of those allies and those partners' concerns. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, for any country that's trying to maybe predict the future and think about how a how a future Republican NSS would differ from this Biden administration NSS, I think this is the area where we're likely to see the greatest whiplash. Right. I mean, there are other areas, obviously, but I think the significant emphasis on climate and other shared challenges is uh, is going to be, I think, the biggest point of departure. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And we're already seeing, you know, criticism from, uh, you know, Republican analysts and and uh, and lawmakers of, of this component of the NSS. You know, another thing on climate, what's interesting, uh, you know, that's interesting is um, the administration very clearly points out that that China has started to link uh, all issues on the U.S.-China agenda, including climate change, to concessions in unrelated areas. But the United States mm-hmm. doesn't favor this and is ready to sort of work with Beijing. So, 
it's it's an interesting uh i think i think rhetorical turn which uh, which the administration has also deployed elsewhere uh, which really makes the point to countries that would like to see more collective action between the u.s and china on on issues like climate change that you know the u.s isn't the one holding up cooperation uh, and so mm -hmm. again i think i think that's a good choice here um yeah yeah i i would agree with that it's it's certainly um I'm sure people could argue forever about whether it's a genuine offer or not on the United States' part that they want to cooperate with China on these issues. But saying publicly that we do uh, is is a is an important signal to again those partners that really prioritize that issue, um, and it it makes China look bad if they don't want to play that game. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, okay, so we're running. A little low on time, but one other thing I wanted to sort of point out, uh, and this is sort of a really, I guess, granular point, but that's just interesting to <laughs> perhaps many of the listeners of our podcast that think about parts of the world like the South China Sea, uh, uh, you know, so on and so forth, is the Biden administration has now formally moved away from freedom of navigation to freedom of the seas, uh, which is a recommendation <laughs> that you know folks have offered for a while. Uh, what? Well, why does that difference matter? Um, you know, some of you might recall that uh, you know China has been coercing certain countries like Vietnam from exploiting undersea hydrocarbons carbon resources in their exclusive economic zones. Uh, so analysts have made the point that when you're talking about freedom of navigation, you're really talking about a narrow set of freedoms related to the navigational rights of, of civilian and military mm -hmm. vessels under under a customary international law uh, and unclose. Uh, but if you're talking about freedom of the seas, you're talking about really everything, including, you know, um, fishing, uh, you know, the the ability to exploit those resources. Uh, and so I think, you know, that's that's a positive change. It's been overdue for a while, and it's good to see that show up in the NSS. But yeah, a really granular point compared to many of the other uh, big picture issues here. Uh, Katie, any any last thoughts from you before we close out? Uh, I The only granular point I would make is that for some reason, Central Asia was included in the Europe section. I don't know what that's about, but Hey, there you go. Uh, you know, that's but all uh, five countries got name dropped, so I'll take it. Yeah. Would you say that's the most surprising thing for you then? You know, a little bit of innovation from the Biden administration? Maybe, maybe the most surprising thing. I mean, I, I, it makes sense on a on a, a geopolitical scale to sort of put Central Asia in with with Russia and Europe. But um, I did find that surprising. Right. Well, unfortunately, we don't have all the time in the world to go through every every sentence in the NSS line by line. Uh, but hopefully listeners found this interesting. Uh, I, I certainly think it's a document worth uh, skimming if you're uh, I mean, certainly if your work focuses at all on what the United States is trying to do in Asia. Um, but Katie, thanks a lot for joining me. Uh, and it's uh, it's, uh, you know, good to join you for this conversation as always. Always a pleasure. Great. Uh, and for listeners, I'll just preview our next episode. Uh, so we have a party congress underway in China uh, with um, Xi Jinping taking on a third term as uh, as China's uh, general secretary and president. And so we will be back to talk about that uh, on the next episode, rest assured. Uh, I know that there's a lot of interest around this event naturally. So uh, next episode on China. Uh, in the meantime, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up with future episodes. Uh, and if you haven't yet subscribed, uh, please do so. We really, we really do appreciate that and it helps the show grow. Uh, thanks a lot for listening and we'll be back soon with more.